0: So, the, uh, the topic this morning is actually very related to what we were just speaking about. I want to continue this uh, series, which is really a series of three talks, which I've titled, um, Becoming Bodhisattvas. And I'm using bodhisattva as shorthand for that aspiration to connect our inner practices with our service and action in the world, with our helping of others. And the the bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition is a being who is dedicated to the deepest inner awakening and also to helping others. And I want to, in this context of three talks, today talk about particularly uh, one of the trainings that a bodhisattva has to go through, which is a training on how to work with views, concepts, theories, and so forth. How do we, how do we work with our views, opinions, concepts, and so forth? And so remember the, the first talk and uh, all of the previous talks are available on the web on Dharma Seed. You can listen to them and download them. The, the first talk was more generally on that vision of connecting inner and outer work. And I refer it also to all uh, to many of the ways that this vision of connecting inner and outer appears in virtually every um, spiritual tradition. That we can see it in indigenous traditions, uh, where the shaman is connected with the community, where the spirituality is very much embedded in the community, connected to the earth and so forth. We can see it in the Jewish prophets with their uh, kind of vast uh, um, influence, really, on uh, Jesus and thereby the whole Christian tradition, uh, all the way up to uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Liberation Theology and so forth, that vision of connecting immersion in the sacred with helping others, serving others, addressing oppression and so forth to the figures of Gandhi, or the figure of Aung San Suu Kyi, very much in the news recently in Burma, to to, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, to the Dalai Lama, and so forth. uh, Figures who are really uh, models of of, uh, connecting this inner and outer work. Um, This is from the Dalai Lama about that, the importance nowadays of of bringing those together. Human beings will have to develop a greater sense of universal responsibility. Each of us must learn to work, not just for his or her own self, family or nation, but for the benefit of all humankind. And probably he would add, actually for the benefit of the planet, I think, because I know he's very concerned with um, uh, global uh, climate disruption you know, and, and, and what's happening there as well. And so, um, and his comments very much connected with a the theme last week, which was also to uh, look into one of the areas of training in some depth, which is the area of training in the ethical dimension. Training uh, in uh, living by certain guidelines, not to harm others, not to kill, not to take that which is not given. Uh, and then care, particularly around sexuality, around speech, around substances which shift consciousness. We probably could add a number of other ethical guidelines. And last time I talked about how those are both guidelines for our individual practice. And that ethical practice can be actually a very deep and profound and very challenging practice. We sometimes take it more for granted at Spirit Rock and other places, and have so much of our focus on meditation, which, which I think is um, an, an imbalance in some ways. I think that uh, as we mature, the ethical practice will become, I think, more significant in our practice, because it really is about how do we live with integrity in all the parts of our lives, and how do we bring the qualities of mindfulness and ethical living and wisdom into all the parts of our lives and uh, not just what we uh, look at on the cushion or not just our, the privacy of our minds. And so we looked uh, last week at, at ethical training as one of the very classical dimensions of training because the, the, the power, I think, particularly of what we receive from the literature and the practices of the bodhisattva is that the bodhisattva is in training. It's not like we say, okay, connect inner and outer, Practice. Bye. Go out there. Do it. Do a good job. But it's rather that to do that, we need to keep training. We need to keep training in all of these areas, and that this is something that the the one interested in connecting in and or outer can do. That it's not easy to do that, and that that there are uh, many dimensions where we where we can train, and that the traditional trainings are the paramis or in the um, Mahayana tradition called the paramitas, which are translated sometimes as the virtues or the the excellences, um, uh, the basic qualities that are, that are important for us to be able to uh, be skillful uh, in our uh, connection of inner and outer. And the, so there are qualities like training in ethics. The classical trainings are to train in generosity, to train in Renunciation to be my, the light is <laughs> going on and off here. So, okay. skillful with electrical implements. <laughs> very, very important. Not on the classical list. Uh, you know, to train in wisdom, to train in how to how to uh, work with our own energy and effort. How to know how to be skillful, knowing how much energy to expend in various areas. There's a training in patience and. Uh, loving-kindness, compassion, we might say, uh, equanimity. In the Mahayana tradition, they add training to be uh, skillful uh, with, in, in our actions. And we could probably expand that for each of the areas that are there for us in our, in our work, in our occupations. We could say, okay, what does skillful means mean as a psychologist, as a parent, as a community organizer, as a... Nurse and so forth. There are, there are all sorts of areas that we can be that we can be skillful in. And the the area that I wanted to particularly to focus on today is, I think, a very important area. It's really an aspect of wisdom training. It's a training in how we can be with uh, our views, our concepts, our theories. Uh, how we can work with our opinions. You know, it seems, it's a very, very crucial area in our daily lives, in our uh, work in the world. You know, the word view is, seems uh, kind of uh, innocuous. It, it doesn't quite get into all of what happens, but we know that our different views, our different opinions, our different ideas can... Um, be the basis for intense conflict, just as we were talking about uh, uh, before the talk began about the contentious atmosphere in much public discussion, or the discussion one finds on television shows with people from different viewpoints (laughs) or reference points. We know that, uh, that the Differences in views can be the basis for breakdown in interpersonal relationships. They can be, we can have very strong views about this or that, about what happened, about what happened interpersonally, about ourselves. We can have strong beliefs that I am a failure and so forth. It can, on a psychological level, it can be uh, quite intense if we really uh, are unskillful with our ideas, our views about ourselves, about other people. Uh, obviously, views about um, the world can be the basis for conflict and wars, as well as for healing, and, and you know, they're beautiful ideas, view, ideas of justice or maybe democracy or peace and so forth. Or, you know, all of this is to enter into this challenging world of views and theories of concepts, and it can be very, very confusing, you know, because one of the uh, directives, when we practice meditation, is to um, learn how to cut through one's repetitive thinking. You know, and come to a place that is out actually has the potential to be outside of the world of concepts, right? And so, how do we deal with that difference? You know, what does it mean to be able to be uh, able to practice to cut through one's um, Attachment or one 's conditioning around concepts, and then how do we use uh, concepts skillfully? Not so easy, right? can be very confusing. you know Should we even use concepts at all shouldn 't I just meditate and shut up? <laughs> often uh, sh- in the short term, very very skillful <laughs> uh, prob- probably could be good practice for for a while. <laughs> But, but eventually, we come back into the world, especially if we're interested in helping others and engaging with the world. We enter into this world of um, concepts and theories. And in fact, we have, um, in the Buddhist tradition and other spiritual traditions, um, the libraries are large. They are books, and the books are not filled with no concepts. <laughs> you know, there, there are incredible number of books that, given great detail and great conceptual sophistication, how to um, move towards getting free of concepts. <laughs> and probably there should be more humor about that. <laughs> I, think, I think there is in many, in many traditions. But, you know, we have very elaborate theories and uh, Buddhist tradition. We have th- very elaborate theories of the mind, uh, how the mind works, uh, how suffering is created, uh, how to develop uh, qualities of mindfulness and compassion, and so forth. What uh, ethical principles are? You know, there's a lot. There's a lot of what we could call theories, concepts, and views. And in fact, one of the parts of the whole eightfold path is sometimes translated as right or mature view. It's a translation of a word ditti or drishti in Sanskrit, which, which is uh, uh, really a, a way of seeing, we might say. It's view as, as a way of seeing or a viewpoint. A little bit like world view, the way we use it, a way of looking. But it, it definitely brings in the, the conceptual. Or if we're interested in responding to injustice or oppression, we may, we definitely enter into the world of understanding, of understanding theories and concepts, and how do we understand the roots of injustice, or how do we understand uh, the nature of racism, or how do we understand the nature of sexism, or other forms of oppression related to whatever, age or sexual orientation or so forth. Uh, A lot of times we need to know, know history, you know, I've been reading a book in the last few days, um, a very uh, powerful book for me by a man named Richard Wolfe, who's an economist, which is uh, a book that gives a lot of clarity for me about the last, uh, well, about the last 100, 150 years of economic history, but particularly the last 30 years. And there are a lot of theories there. A lot, a lot of it's based on uh, you know, very sound data. But there are all sorts of understandings of how, essentially, in the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a massive uh, transfer of wealth from the, the middle classes and the less well-to-do towards the wealthy, you know, which is not simply a theory, but is very well-grounded. So we enter into that world, right? How do, we, how do we act skillfully with that understanding of history if we want to be, um, be helpful for others? So how do we work with that? Um, How do we understand our institutions? How do we understand uh, organizations and so forth? How do we look at uh, the world with uh, what we might call uh, the eyes of Dharma? How do we we see clearly? How do we look psychologically at ourselves? You know, how do we make use of psychological theories? One of the major areas that uh, meditation is entering this culture is through the interaction with psychology. You know, and, and there are a lot of theories of the brain, of of and so forth. So how do we work? How do we work skillfully with uh, with ideas, theories, and concepts? Um, so what I want to do is to talk about how this is understood traditionally, some, and then point to how we might, in general, understand uh, working with views and concepts and theories. And out of that really finish by suggesting uh, several practices that we can take home that are there for us on a very everyday level that I think are also important when we get into um, you know more complicated types of views and theories. And so I think as with all of our practice, everything we do, it's really good to ground in our direct experience and our own practice and then have that be the basis for which we bring out that understanding into more complicated areas. I think that's always a very sound way to go. And so so that we can really see the principles operative in our own experience, our own consciousness. This is what I found when I was writing the book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, and looking into the connection between inner and outer work. I found that the core principles of transformation are the same at the individual level at the relational level, interpersonal level, and at the larger collective level of institutions. Of course, it gets more complicated, but the core principles are the same. That's what, I mean, you can take that uh, as my finding and, and see whether that's true for you, but that's what I found, in other words, that how we work with uh, suffering individually is quite similar to how we might work with suffering uh, on a larger social level, you know, and, and you know one, kind of simple way to understand this is that the ability to open up to what's painful and not simply be reactive is something we train in individually in our meditation. We learn how to be with what's difficult without simply being knocked around by what's painful or difficult for us. And this is also right at the core, for example, of the traditions of nonviolence. Gandhi and King, it's about... Can we be with difficulty and suffering and oppression and not simply be reactive and pass on the pain in further cycles of pain, but stop the cycles of reaction and violence here with us, with me? So I think that, for me, that's exactly what we do in our meditation. We learn how to be with patterns which may have been going on for a very long time. We see them clearly. We stay with them we're mindful, we develop compassion, and we say those old cycles of reaction, they stop with me, they stop in my, uh, as best I can in my practice. So anyway, that's, we can come back to that, but that's what I have found, certainly, that the principles are the same, and so this principle of grounding in our, our own depth of our own in, individual practice is really crucial for being a bodhisattva, or bringing out our practice into the world. We need to have that be pretty well grounded, and then we can see, oh, um, I can practice wise speech myself. And then, like in the example I gave before the talk began, I can also, okay, how do I bring out that wise speech into an organization? A little more complicated, but some of the principles are pretty similar, you know. So, maybe we can come back to that. So, traditionally, there's, there's a lot to be said um, about views. There was a lot said traditionally. As I mentioned, it's one of the eight aspects of the Eightfold Path is to practice a wise view or mature view. Um, so what does it mean? Um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of teachings on this. And one of the teachings... Uh, I'll mention a few of them. One of the famous ones is the teaching of the raft. This is in, uh, if anyone wants to look it up, it's in Majjama uh number 22. Majjama Nikaya is, in, in the bookstore, is the large brown book. <laughs> <laughs> that is called, Majima means a middle length. Uh, it's, the, it's the it's the collection of middle length discourses which means they're all like 10 to 15 pages long <laughs> and there're like 150 of them and i once bought that i once bought that book and read one a day for 150 days it was a really nice way to go into that world it didn't take too long so anyway this is one of one of those texts and it's it's a nice way to go into it you know that you're not you know you know that you can finish it in a certain amount of time Understanding, that's another matter, but you can at least (laughs) finish finish the words. So um, there's a famous passage where the Buddha says, My teachings are like a raft. They are there to take one across the waters to the other shore. When you get to the other shore, it would be a foolish person who walked around with a raft on your back. (laughs) In other words, that the... um, teachings are skillful means for pragmatic purposes. And they shouldn't be held on too tightly. Or from, from what I read last time from Thich Nhat Hanh, he says it in very similar ways. He says, do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. So a very pragmatic understanding, which goes very well with I think American culture, which is which, at its best, is quite quite pragmatic, um, and so another another text, uh, also uh, in Majimini Kaya, uh, number 63. So probably only a few copies in the bookstore, so we'll have to <laughs> have to order more for. <laughs> so uh, another famous uh, passage where. Uh, The Buddha says, um, uh, imagine a man shot by a poisoned arrow. What would be helpful for that man? Suppose the man asked others, could you tell me who shot the arrow? Could you tell me what kind of arrow it was? What kind of bird's feathers were on the arrow? Was it a long arrow? A short arrow? Was the person who shot it older or younger? What was that person's background? He said, a person who asked so many questions would soon die. And he says, what one needs is to take out the arrow. <laughs> and, to ha- and, and he was using that again in a pragmatic sense. One needs enough knowledge to be able to take out the arrow in a skillful way. And there are a lot of other passages like that uh, where um, another one, very famous one, the, the uh, Kalama Sutta, which I've uh, referred to from time to time, where uh, the Kalama people who lived at a crossroads, I like to think of the Kalamas as kind of being like in the Bay Area. They had all sorts of spiritual teachers coming through. So, you know, they had the, they had the equivalent of the Bay Area where on any given weekend you could do, you know, workshop in Tantra, you know, uh, or you could do, you know, endless events at Spirit Rock, or you could do, you know, a the newest technique to help you cut through your old belief systems, or you could do, you know, um, spiritual dancing, or, or um, you know, improve your uh, relational life um, at a slight expense. And so... Um, The Kalamas were like that. They lived in uh, a place called Kesaputta, which was like a crossroads. They had all sorts of spiritual teachers coming through. And then one day the Buddha comes through and he says, You know, we have so many people coming through. What should we believe? You know, they say different things. What should we do? What should we. And And the Buddha gave this very famous answer, which is again emphasizing the pragmatic. He said, It is proper for you, Kalamas, to doubt, to be uncertain. Uncertainty has arisen in you. Come, Kalamas, do not go upon what has been acquired by repeating hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in a scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon an axiom, nor nor upon reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion, nor on on another's seeming ability, nor on the consideration that this person is our teacher. You know, so don't even believe it because a teacher is saying it. Don't believe it because it's in the tradition, a scripture. That's from this is 25, 2,600 years ago. Someone saying, "Don't believe the holy scriptures." Right? Uh, very contemporary in a certain way. You know, with that sensitivity. But basically, says, know that this when you look for yourselves, and know that this is helpful. Then take that as a guiding uh, view. When you know that it's not helpful, reject it. That's his answer. Again. So, what do we make of these? You know, we have a sense that the um, understanding of views and theories and concepts should be highly pragmatic. There's a real concern about attachment to views. You know, which which persists through the tradition. And we have we have. Um, People who come later in the Buddhist tradition who point out the way that actually our conceptual minds are structured in dualities. (laughs) You know, we have yes and no, right and wrong, uh, up and down. We often have on you know on our some of our core fundamental issues: is there free will or not? (laughs) You know, that there was a a teacher philosopher named Nagarjuna who came along about. about six or seven hundred years after the Buddha who said, actually, truth cannot be pinned down in language because language has this dualistic structure. Later, there were philosophers in the West who said very similar things. Kant and Hegel said very similar things, that you can't actually get to the deepest truths in language. That language, and again, it's really supporting the view that language and concepts are pragmatic means, and it's helpful to know that. So part of the... Part of the inquiry in Buddhist tradition is to come to be able to actually to see the relativity of language in one's own immediate experience, in one's own direct experience. For me, it was one of the most fundamental and interesting insights. When the mind gets more still, one can see how concepts are continually being generated, Theories are continually being generated. It's all the time. Our minds work by developing concepts and theories, a lot of them for our supposed well-being. I was noticing when I was driving over here from Berkeley this morning, and I was contemplating the topic of views, driving across the San Rafael-Richmond Bridge, and I noticed myself um, looking about three-quarters of a mile up ahead as I was going over the, the bridge where I was ascending, and I noticed that there was a um, a truck in the right hand lane. And I quickly did some theoretical work and I said, you know, and I said, what's the data? Will this be a slow lane that I should shift? You know, there was, it was, my mind was doing basically theoretical work. I was trying to get available data, look carefully, look at the speed of the cars, and make an assessment for the pragmatic end of should I change the lane or not. Um, eventually, I decided that things were going well enough and I wasn't that much in a hurry <coughs> and I stayed in the same lane. But my mind was working in a, you know, it's, it, this is the ordinary mind developing like an everyday rough theory about what lane should I be in, right? And, and all of theory and science and so forth is just a refinement of that very ordinary capacity. It's no different than that. You get data. You use your intelligence in the best way to make an assessment. right? It's no, it's no different than that. We're doing that all the time. So it's very helpful when we actually um, contemplate the mind and deepen in concentration when the mind gets more quiet. It's fascinating because then we can see how language also is highly pragmatic and it's, it's very, very crude actually. When we look into inner experience, that becomes very obvious because language is mostly designed for helping us navigate the external world, not very good at the internal world, not very good at all the subtleties. It's mostly there to help us, you know, I don't know, go over bridges and make refrigerators and you know, farm. You know, I don't know. simplification, but some truth to that, and so. Um, and so when we go into the quiet mind we can see how we are uh, really so bound to the conceptual world. We're very conditioned by our concepts. So it's extremely helpful in training about views to be able to get to a point of experience where we can, where we can experience the world without concepts and theories for sustained periods of time as part of our training. It really helps us to take views and concepts much more as pragmatic means. And so it's a really important part of our training to be able to do that, to be able to be with a tree, or what we call a tree, without saying the word tree over and over again in our mind. And I think we do this a lot, and you know, We can be with a sunset and just be with the raw experience that's almost that's beyond the concepts, or not using concepts. Really, really crucial to be able to do that. And yet we need to also to use ordinary concepts. There's a really fascinating story um, of the meeting of a, ja, of a Korean Zen teacher named Sun Sunim with the uh, Tibetan teacher named Kala Rinpoche. They met. And the Zen teacher, Sun Sunim, started trying out his Zen method with the, um, the uh, Tibetan teacher, Kala Rinpoche, who, who didn't know anything about such methods. And so he, he held up an orange and said, Is this an orange? You know, kind of with a fierce... Zen approach and said, is this an orange? If you say yes, I hit you 30 times. If you say no, I hit you 30 times. Okay. Okay, So, I don't know how many of you were experienced with Zen practice, but maybe enough to come to Spirit Rock. (laughs) But, uh, in any case, um, so, the point, the point of that practice is to have the students drop concepts, right? Can you be with the orange without either saying it's an orange or not an orange? Both of which answers are in the realm of concepts. It's basically a teaching method to invite people to drop concepts. Many, many such methods. Um, Kala Rinpoche didn't know that's what he was doing. And so he went through his translator and said, that's basically, don't they have oranges in Korea? (laughs) So I don't know that they went any further in their communication, but sort of broke down a little bit. But the, but but I think it points to both. It points to both the importance of being able to go beyond concepts, so we don't get so attached to them, really, and then to and then to also be able to use skillful concepts like orange um, when we need to. So how how to do that? Um, because I, so I think what the, the, the point of the traditional teachings is to say, let us use views and concepts in a pragmatic way. Let us be careful when we get attached to them. Let us go deep enough in our meditation so we know experientially the relative nature of concepts. And so we know the potential to be without concepts. You know, to be without, at least without verbal concepts in our experience. And so, in a sense, we learn how to be with concepts more lightly. That's one way to say it. Use them skillfully, yes, but can we be with them more lightly? So let me, let me finish just with giving a bunch of practices that we could, that we could take home. And these will explore different dimensions of working, working with views. So the first one is just to be mindful of our of our views. And you might, as you are practicing, notice what views come up a lot in your minds. Assemble your top five or top ten views, (laughs) you know, uh, your list of what are most prominent. Notice where you get attached to views, where there's some something that sticks. You know, notice that when you're discussing political views or discussing um, spiritual views. Notice where, you, where there's some uh, attachment or stuckness. And, and explore the difference. What's the difference between attachment and commitment? <clears throat> That's a big one. It's a big one in many parts of our lives. You know, we need to be committed to our practice. We can also be attached to our practice. We need to be committed to relationships or to certain kinds of work. We can also be attached. What's the difference between them? How can we be committed to living by ethical principles but not be attached to those principles? What does that mean? It opens up a lot of questions, right? We could say a lot about that. Maybe we can do that in the, in the discussion. So notice, notice, notice what the v- prominent views are. Notice where we get attached. And it's related to a second practice which is one of taking uh, noticing attachment to views as a starting point for inquiry. Now, I, I learned this. I learned a variant of this practice and had a big influence. I think I've mentioned it from time to time here. Um, quite a while ago, I was in a program called Revisioning Philosophy. As some of you know, I have a um, a doctorate in philosophy in a past life. <laughs> And so I, at one point, you know, I read the entire history of human thought, Western and Eastern, and also indigenous to to a significant extent. And uh, it was valuable up to a certain point. And, um, but I was, I was uh, asked to be, when I was uh, in my 30s, I was asked to be part of a group that was trying to do innovative work to try to bring the, the, uh, the whole world of philosophy back more to its roots in wisdom and its practical roots, because it had become, in the universities, a specialized and highly esoteric and not all that interesting uh, discipline. Some of you may have experienced this in, in college, you know, where it, uh, you might say, oh I want to deal with the big issues, and then you got in, you know, learned something that was highly technical and, and not so interesting. Quite often the case, so we were trying to shift the culture in this way. And there were wonderful people. There was uh, Houston Smith, was there Jacob Needleman, who some of you know from San Francisco State, was there. I later worked with uh, Susan Griffin. We had a whole emphasis on feminist approaches. There was, uh, we had eventually we had people from um, uh, uh, Mexico. A man named Enrique Ducell who was. Uh, uh, liberation theologian was part of it. We had very interesting people. And um, at one of our first meetings, it was noticed <coughs> that people were becoming contentious with each other around different views. These wonderful, compassionate, wise philosophers seemed to be getting <laughs> to the same old stuff, <laughs> right? And so there was a man named, named Robert McDermott who labored, later became the president of CIAS, who invited a practice which really influenced me. He said, let your noticing of a difference in views in which you feel a charge be the starting point for inquiry rather than war. In other words, you notice a difference in views. It could be with your partner, with your, within your family, at work, and so forth. Let that be a starting point for inquiry. Look at how it feels. What's the charge about? How does it feel in the body? Ask the reflective question. Is there something I might learn from this person? No way. (laughs) But actually ask that. Is there something I might learn from this person? Why does this have such a charge for me? Is there something in my background which is leading to that charge? And really to ask that question and sit there and, you know, try to do that inner work. We can do that, you know while it's happening, while the charge is there, or maybe maybe later with reflection, do I really know? Am I attached to my view? And so forth. So to really use that, and I've used that myself, and I've brought it into teaching, and people have found it very helpful to take that. It can be really illuminating. You know, why am I so... You know, because a lot of our views, of course, are driven <coughs> by what's beneath the surface. You know, by experiences we may have had a long time ago, that lead us to take a certain view almost like to protect ourselves or to have an identity or whatever. So it can be very, very illuminating. Maybe a last practice I'll give and then we can open things up is, is related. It's to practice listening to people with other views. Radical idea. <laughs> practice listening to people with other views. Can you listen? And you can do that second practice, can really say, okay, what's happening with me? Is there a charge? What's going on? Um, can I really listen? And do I notice myself contesting the viewer, waiting to speak even before the person is finished? Can I, can I really study that? And then I'll, I'll just end with a story, which was very interesting uh, for me. Um, um, this was actually right before 9-11, and it probably couldn't happen after 9-11 a bunch of us did a <coughs> retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory, not usually known as a retreat center. And we, we did a retreat where we, it was, a, it was an interfaith retreat. We actually got permission to do the retreat in one of the parking lots. On the, on the grounds that we could not ever use we could not ever use their bathrooms. And we were there for five days. So, so the solution was we, we, we bought a very, very large RV that had a bathroom and also provided shade in the New Mexico summer. And um, we did a retreat there for five days. We meditated. We gave talks. Every lunchtime, we were permitted to uh, meet in the Los Alamos uh, cafeteria, and we met, and, and uh, indi- you know, a bunch of us individually went off to have lunch with the Los Alamos scientists, and it was very illuminating. We did that you know, like four or five days, you know, two hour and a half lunches, just talking with the people. And it was interesting, some of the people in our group had a really hard time listening. They had their views, their political views about nuclear weapons and so forth. They didn't want to listen. It was, really, it was challenging for some people to listen. It was also very interesting to listen and just to hold back and actually say, what's this person's reality who may have very different views than me? It was a practice. It was really, really interesting. And what I found out was that, by and large, when they were given room to speak and they knew they were speaking with someone who was uh, minimally a stranger and perhaps with different views, they went to their own rationale for why it was good to build nuclear weapons. You know, and and some variant of it. You know, it's like, we're we're a good nation and the good nation needs to have the bad weapons, right? So it could be that or it could be um, we would never do anything bad with them. You know, or something like that. But it was very interesting to listen to them and then to listen to what they were, were saying and find ways to connect with them. You know, find ways to actually meet people with very, very different views. So maybe that could be thought of as a third practice, to really listen, particularly when there are different views and see what there, there is. Notice one's own, again, attachment to one's own concepts. So maybe I'll finish with that story. Because there's a lot more that we could say we could probably actually go on for many, many sessions looking into the subtleties of working with views. But maybe that's a starting point. And it also helps ground the practice in our own individual experience, which is, again, I think the um, really the the guiding principle for um, bringing our work further out into the world. It's to have a strong individual practice that really makes so much possible. So I'll stop, maybe just a moment to let things settle, and then we can talk together some. So any, any questions, reflections? Questions, clarification, please. Yeah. Um, Donald, I found myself thinking about
1: a lot of things, but one of them had to do with self righteousness and
0: yeah. pleasure of that and um and also the judgmental line. Yeah. and how they're connected. Yeah. Yeah, so great question. Um the relation of this practice with views, with practicing with self righteousness or with the judgmental mind. And originally I was going to talk about both views and the judgmental mind, but it's uh, even, you know, that, that was probably probably too much. So it's good it's come up, or it was too much. Um, so um, yeah, I think I think uh, related, but but could be distinct. Um, so really to you know really to look for moments of self righteousness in our in our practice. And we can use some of those, the three practices I mentioned, could be aids to really track self-righteousness. A lot of self-righteousness we have to keep looking at because it's, you know, it, it will point to certain deeper structures of the self. And it's not, it's not that we see it once and that's, it's over, that's it. <laughs> Typically, patterns of self-righteousness have been going on for a while. Like, since we were three. And, and so it takes, takes quite a while to look at them. And, say, and of course we've been doing that. Anyone who's been coming here, looking at self-righteousness is a big part of our practice. And being self-righteous doesn't mean that we don't have a certain amount of truth. But it can be a problem to be self-righteous. You know, One of my favorite cartoons is the one that shows um, a gravestone with the epitaph, um, He Had the Right of Way. Which probably says as much as I could say in five minutes, (laughs) right? Um, And so it's really, I think, to track it, to see it maybe as a form of attachment to ideas. We attach to ideas, to views, to all sorts of things, Really, as um, you know, like in judgments, often as a way of protecting ourselves, or a way of making sure we get what we want, or think. You know, of course, it doesn't work very well, but that's kind of the inner logic to be self-righteous. You know, it, it, it's it's in a sense could be could be many expressions of it, and so the judgments I think quite quite similar that. Um, If I have, let's say, a political view and I'm judging someone very harshly, let's say, you know, like I have a political view about what, like the example I mentioned about, okay, there's been a great transfer of wealth from the middle classes to, you know, and poorer people to the wealthy in the last 30 years. That's surfaced in, you know, facts like, the fact that uh, I think, I think uh, 40 years ago or so the ratio for every dollar of taxes paid by um, individuals, the total of individuals, uh, the the taxes paid by corporations was $1.50. For every dollar paid by individuals, corporations pay $1.50. Now the ratio is for every dollar paid by individuals, corporations pay 25 cents. So it's one-sixth the proportion of what it used to be. And, you know, it's parallel to the shift from the tax brackets from 91% to 35%, not even mentioning the fact that wealthy people mostly make their money outside of income, which, and is not taxed, for, you know, in the same way or often not at all. So all sorts of things, you know, so I could have views about that. I could be very self-righteous about that. And I could be very judgmental about wealthy people or about banks or about, you know, whatever. I could go that route. And um, I could have a certain, I could buttress my judgmental attitude with statistics like the ones I gave. Those, what I just gave is not, those are from official labor statistics. It's not controversial. And uh, I could still be highly judgmental. And I would say very ineffective if I'm judgmental because I'm tending to demonize and polarize. And so working with judgments is also really, really crucial in the, in the realm of views. You know, and um, a, lot, a lot could be said there, but uh, essentially what I have seen in my own work with judgments, and many of you in the group are familiar with this because we've looked into that a lot, is that the judgmental mind is composed of some kind of discernment or noticing or observation linked with reactivity, which means kind of a compulsive pushing away in many cases, sometimes grabbing hold, but often pushing away. And the reactivity is going to lead to somewhat unconscious or automatic behavior, which can lead to a lot of suffering, even if we have a certain amount of truth on our side, so to speak. And so the long-term work with judgments is to really, really notice the reactivity you know, which again is part of all those exercises I gave are ways of understanding reactivity. What's it like in the body when I'm there and I really feel this person just doesn't get this economic point I'm making. You know, and feel it in the body, study it in oneself. Because the long term work that I've seen with the judgmental mind is that we have to that we don't want to just throw out the judgment, because then we get rid of the discernment or the intelligence. We need to somehow um, ...disconnect the discernment from the reactivity. Which is not easy, it's long term. It takes, takes, can take a while. But then we can use that intelligence, maybe about the economy or something else... ...and use it for the purposes of compassionate action. And a great deal of... ...great number of activists are filled with reactivity. You know, and... and ...very mixed results when that, that's the case, as we can see from reading the papers. You know, so people who are um, really committed to helping the world and helping others, I think, need to do that work. And it's been interesting. I've been invited sometimes to do workshops on judgments for activists. And they've come. You know, and they're interested. And they really are, And they, many of them acknowledge this as a real problem because it's, it doesn't just manifest in judgments about the so-called opponent. It manifests in continual infighting in organizations. It's an endemic problem, you know, in activist organizations. They don't, because judgment isn't like sol- selectively used, just okay, we'll just judge these people. It becomes a way of being in the world to be judgmental. And it, it, it gets turned, ultimately it gets turned on themselves. And so it's really important to have this inner training for everyone who's doing outer work, you know. Thank you.
1: How how, how can we maintain an edge of strength um, and engagement? It seems that if we go in the direction of non-judgment, which I think is essential for growth, it feels like we could end up with a certain... um, loss of intensity yeah. and engagement so i'm thinking of nonviolent movements that yeah. that turned away from violence turned away from and toward toward nonviolence and dignity yeah but still maintained a certain element of confrontiveness mm-hmm. that wasn't reactive confrontiveness yeah it was a willingness to confront without surrendering to to more negative and destructive impulses. So yeah. That seems to be a, mm-hmm. a difficult yeah. thing to construct a, a lot of the
0: time. Yeah. and Remind me of your name? David. David. So a great question from David about the um, challenges of doing this inner work with judgments, let's say, or with views in general. And how does one keep one's edge that actually can take you into action? And was pointing to... Um, some movements, we can think of the, you know, the civil rights movement at certain times. Um, you know, maybe from, uh, particularly guided by King, you know, from the, uh, middle fifties to 1968 or so. We can think of that period and there was very, um, there was a very active engagement and a firmness in being with the issues. And uh, that was also, but it was also guided by, uh, you know, in their own way of doing it, uh, non-reactivity, right? You know, they would use Christian concepts of love, especially. That was really a guiding concept. You know, when we, and we've looked at that when we've when we've uh, looked at had some readings from King. So I think that's a great question. How to do that? Is really, is a challenge. I think one aspect of it is to have some connection with the suffering or the difficulty so that the compassion element is there. You know, for Martin Luther King, there was no question about his immersion in the problems that he was trying to address. For people who sometimes are more middle class, there sometimes can be a privilege where it's possible not to be directly connected with the problems, right? And so I think one way of doing this is to really ha- deliberately — I mean Thich Nhat Hanh says this in his Guidelines — he says, um, and I'll, I'll finish with this, Do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering by all means, including personal contacts and visits images and sounds. So I think that that would be part of an answer, that when one is um, really in contact with the issues, then it's not so much a question, should I act or not act? And that's, that's not always easy. But you know, in, in many of these instances, where you think of Thich Han in Vietnam, they were in the midst of war. It was not an option not to respond. It's a question of how to respond. For some of us, it becomes, a question, it, it, it becomes possible not, not to respond directly to the larger issues. Of course, we have to respond to all the issues in our everyday lives. So, so, so I would say that connection with doing the work on non-judgment, but always have the connection with the heart. That's, that's a shorthand way of, of answering that question, and that keeps one wanting to respond. You know And again, maybe and to try that out, see what that means on the level of one's everyday life, uh, home, family, work. Because the same issues will arise there. One can work with, how do you work with non-judgment within families and still stay connected? You know, and, last thing to say, there is a time for cycles of withdrawal and return. <laughs> Definitely. You, know, you see that in everyone. Sometimes you need just to do the inner work and withdraw for a while. You know, and even Gandhi... Thich Nhat Hanh all do that. There are all the, always these cycles. Okay. So l- let's close. We c- could go on forever. I have to discipline myself to finish on time. So thank you for your patience. And um, let's just sit and I'll recall the three practices I, I mentioned. The first is mindfulness of views in all sorts of ways, particularly looking for attachment. The second is taking a difference of views where where you experience a charge as a starting point for inquiry. And the third is listening. Listening particularly to someone with another view. Listening empathically and as if you have something to learn. (laughs) And so I'll invite uh, moment of reflection about what may have been helpful and and your intentions as we leave uh, this morning. So knowing that we practice for ourselves, but also for others, we offer the fruits of our practice to ourselves, to each other in this community, and ultimately to all beings. Thank you for your attention. could easily keep going on this, maybe in July.